Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. And so one could say, and the judge kind of acknowledges that we're undermining the will of the citizens of the city of St. Louis. On today's Legal Roundtable, more discussion of the legal battles surrounding St. Louis's infamous McCloskeys. No one is saying she only, Kim Gardner only did this to make money. They're saying it doesn't look fair. Medical marijuana. They're using up all the funds from this to defend these lawsuits instead of it going to the veterans and to the veterans hospitals. What we have here in terms of the Commerce Clause is really a winning lawsuit. Duck boat disasters and lawyers behaving badly. I'm Sarah Fenske, and this is St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. So, how about those McCloskeys? The trial attorneys are being prosecuted for unlawful use of a firearm. St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner brought the charges after journalists captured the couple on camera as they brandished guns at protesters walking past their home in the Central West End. But earlier this month, St. Louis Circuit Court Judge Thomas Clark II ruled against Gardner in the case against Mark McCloskey. He said neither the circuit attorney nor anyone in her office can prosecute this case. And the reason reason is that her campaign has cited its work on this case in fundraising emails. That decision does not come without controversy, and joining us today to discuss it and so much more is an expert panel of attorneys. That includes today Mark Smith. He's an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. Mark, welcome. Thanks. Good to be back. And we're also joined today by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. Nicole, welcome. Thank you, and thanks for having me. And last but not least, today we're joined by Susan McGraw. She's a former public defender and the director of the Criminal Defense Clinic at St. Louis University School of Law. Susan, welcome back. Thanks, Sarah. So, Susan, I want to start with you. What right does a judge have to tell a prosecutor that she can't prosecute? Well, the judge, uh, Sarah, is in charge of making sure that the defendant and the state get a fair shot. A prosecutor has a different ethical duty than other lawyers. I mean, their ethical duty is to bring justice. And that requires them to be apolitical, and it requires them to seek only justice. In a case like this, where there's a question about whether charges were brought in order to encourage donations, um, which is what people are alleging, they're really, the judge has to come down on the side of looking like this is fair to everybody. Hmm. So they do have the right where a prosecutor shows interest outside of bringing justice in a case to get a different prosecutor. How unusual is it that we'd see a decision like this where they're saying, nope, you can't do this one? It's unusual because for the most part, if there's a conflict of interest, the prosecuting attorney will disqualify themselves and ask for someone else to be appointed. Hmm. So it's highly unusual that a judge has to step in and do it. Nicole, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, I mean, I'll go off your last question. I think this is highly unusual. I mean, in my entire career, I don't think I've seen this. Um, And, you know, I did did prosecution in various venues. Um, I think, you know... I've seen the issue come up for before. I think judges are generally very hesitant to get involved in these types of issues. I think it's a little odd here, um, especially because, you know, the charges came first. The political ad came after that. So I don't know that they really can say uh, the charges were filed so that they could be used in political ads. And, you know, if I looked at the actual language of the political ads, and it wasn't really... Um, as clear cut, I think, as some people might think, I, I thought it was fairly um, 
innocuous, but um, I, I also think, you know, prosecutors, I mean, there's a part of me that's so naive, maybe, that I just think this happens all the time, because prosecutors, when they run for election, they have to run on their record. Um, and I think, you know, they may bring up specific cases all the time. So um, I was pretty surprised by the ruling, actually. Mark, do you think the problem here is that this case was still pending? If she had just waited until it wrapped up, she could have sent a million fundraising emails after it, and maybe it wouldn't have even affected future appeals. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the, um, you know, although she did not uh, name the McCloskeys by name, it was very clear who she was talking about. And, and, you know, she talked about their mansion and some other um, that she was going to hold them accountable. And the judge pointed to some of those facts. Um, having said that, you know, a lot of she argued this was in response to a lot of criticism that, um, you know, Governor uh, Parsons, um, uh, the uh, Republican Missouri Attorney General, even President Trump. And and she noted that, you know, this was right around the time of her primary against another Democrat. And it wasn't anything about the other Democrats so that she was running against. Um, so, I mean, the court was clear that she had the right to say it. This was part of her First Amendment right. And um, but they did talk some about the professional responsibility of prosecutors, which prosecutors seem to me, at least, to often kind of push up against you know, talking about this person they're going after and how they're really going to stick it to them. So I, I was kind of surprised by this, too. And and you'll recall there was a case what, two years ago where um, uh, Circuit Attorney Gardner was disqualified. It was a different kind of case. But the Supreme Missouri Supreme Court ultimately said, no, no, the, you know, the citizens elected her. She she should go ahead and prosecute this case. There, That was where there was a police officer was involved in a shooting, but the defendant shot the police officer. They were also doing an investigation. It was a muddier set of facts, and they said that's not enough to excuse her. So well, this could be appealed. Do you think it will be appealed? Susan, do you think that they have um, maybe a good case here if they took this to the appellate level? You know, you can appeal anything. Um, I don't know if they will appeal, I think that the McCloskey's lawyer, Joel Schwartz, thinks that they're going to appeal. Um, you know, the trouble is also going to be finding someone who's willing to take the case, another prosecutor who is willing to say, yeah, I'll step in and look at the case. I mean, I, I think one of the issues is going to be what if another prosecutor looks at the case and says there's not enough here to make a case and dismisses the case. And when we talk um, so, about somebody else taking this case, could could any private lawyer be conscripted to become a prosecutor here? Or do they need to find somebody who's already acting in a prosecutorial capacity somewhere? Susan, I don't know if you know the answer to that. It should really be someone who's already a prosecutor. And that is normally how it's done. Um, you know, you'll, you'll switch cases and someone in, you know, uh, Lomar in St. Charles County will take the case or Wesley Bell, but it's such a politically charged case. You know, I'm not sure anyone's going to be willing to take it. So, Mark, could this be the end of the line? The McCluskey's end up uh, walking free. Yeah, it could be. Um, also, and I, we didn't you know explicitly say this, but the judge didn't just disqualify Gardner, but her whole office. So, you know, sometimes at law firms and, you know, they'll They'll build barriers so you can uh, have the same firm representing different aspects of a situation um, and people sign off on the conflicts. Here they said, because everyone reports to her, the whole office is disqualified. You know, I just re was, I was re-looking at the opinion and it says, because I kind of assume it would have to be another prosecutor, but it just says the presiding judge will identify some other attorney to prosecute this case. So hmm. sounds like it could be anyone. 
Well, if you're listening to this conversation, we're curious to hear from you, particularly if you have some insight into the legal question here. Do you think there is an appearance of a conflict here that that means that the circuit attorney should not be allowed to prosecute this case? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Also, if you have other legal questions related to what we're talking about on today's show, you're welcome to join us. Again, that's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Nicole, there's another question I have about this one, and that is that at this point, this ruling only applies to Mark McCloskey. They're being prosecuted separately with separate judges involved. Does it necessarily hold that the judge in his wife's case, that the lawyers have made a similar request there, should we assume that they're just going to follow what this other judge has done, or is that not how this works? I think they probably are. I I think, you know, um, this is probably the precedent and it's going to be followed in uh, the wife's the wife's case. And so I think we're probably going to be looking at the same ruling. Yes. So now that one judge has gone here, the other guy isn't likely to bucket is how you'd read it. Right. I mean, especially because the judges are going to be colleagues. I don't think that it's going to be uh, a different ruling. So here's the question then. Do you think the judge made the right ruling here? I understand this is just a matter of opinion. Different lawyers can come to different conclusions. Nicole, what's your what's your thinking? Oh, that's a loaded question for a lawyer, Sarah. And we're not supposed to, you know, question judges' rulings. We're supposed to respect judges' rulings. Ah. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I had been the judge, if I would have made the same ruling. I'm going to leave it at that. Mark, thoughts on that question? Did the judge yeah, make I, the I right ruling? It, yeah, I'm not going to second guess the judge either, but um, I do think it's a close case. Um, I think it's a pretty unusual situation. Um, you know, um, Circuit Attorney Gardner is a, a controversial figure, but the citizens of St. Louis, you know, we elected it, her as our prosecutor. And and part of that was, um, you know, she represents a particular approach to um, criminal law enforcement. And so I think to say and and I think part of that is going after someone like the McCloskey's. And so one could say and the judge kind of acknowledges that we're un, undermining the will of the citizens of the city of St. Louis. Hmm. Susan, do you share that concern that, that this might be an undermining of what the electorate wants? You know, I do, but for me, it's important that there be an appearance of imp- uh, impartiality, right? No one is saying she only, Kim Gardner only did this to make money. They're saying it doesn't look fair. Mm-hmm. And uh, as someone who's a member of the criminal defense bar, I, I support uh, giving everybody a fair shot. And I think this is part of that. I'm going to go to the phone lines. We have a couple callers. We're going to keep this part relatively quick, but I do want to hear their perspective on this. Ron is calling from Bridgeton. Um, Ron, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, Ron. Hi. You're on the air. Uh, what what yes. are your thoughts on this prosecution? Uh, I think uh, uh, the prosecutor, Kim Gartner, should be able to uh, proceed with the case. And why is and, that? And ter- well, because she's she was elected by the city, by the citizen. And, and, and just because someone thinks that uh, she's been uh, um, uh, impartial, you know, that doesn't make sense. Well, Ron, thank she, you for that perspective. I, I know there are a lot of voters out there who, who would probably share that sentiment. Let's go to Janice calling from St. John. Um, Janice, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi. I think that uh, if any other person were involved in this, there would be no change of uh, prosecute, prosecuting attorney. And I think this, this is just another display of white privilege in the state of Missouri. So you think Kim Gardner is getting treated unfairly here? Yes, ma'am. It's just white privilege. Well, Janice, thank, thank you for your perspective. I appreciate hearing that. Um, it sounds like the people are with Kim, even if the judge is saying she can't do this. So it's interesting to hear those voices. Uh, we're talking today to our legal roundtable. That includes Mark Smith of Washington University, Susan McGraw of St. Louis University School of Law, and Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue our conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. We're talking to our legal roundtable today, and that includes Susan McGraw. She's a former public defender and director of the Criminal Defense Clinic at St. Louis University School of Law. We're also joined by Mark Smith. He's an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. And Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor, now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. We did have a caller with a question. Um, I'm just going to paraphrase it here myself. This is Matt calling from St. Louis County. And he asked, could Wesley Bell take up this case? That's the prosecuting attorney in St. Louis County. Mark, do you think this is something Wesley Bell would want to take on? He's he's well, had some judgments here that have been different than some of Kim Gardner's judgments. Right. First, he would have to be appointed. Like, you know, the decision leaves it up to the presiding judge to pick. Um, yeah, I mean... So it's not Wesley's call whether or not he gets this job. No, it would be be his call if he would accept it. And like Susan kind of implied, I don't see a lot of prosecuting attorneys jumping at this saying, give that case to me. I'd I'd love to be, um, you know, right in the middle of this mess. And and also, you know, we've had the governor say, I'm going to pardon these guys. And so it's, um, I don't know, I um, I don't know Wesley Bell. He seems like a pretty smart guy to me. I think he'd be smart enough to stay away from this. I see Susan nodding. You you feel like Wesley's not going to choose to put himself in the middle of this. I, I don't know who would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that. I think that on that note, we'll end on the McCloskeys. Let's talk about another case involving judges ruling against prosecutors. This comes out of Branson. A federal judge there dismissed criminal charges against three men who'd been indicted in the 2018 sinking of a duck boat there on Table Rock Lake. This was a terrible incident. This incident killed 17 people. And now these guys are not going to face any criminal charges. Nicole, what, what's going on with this one? So I think it was so interesting that, you know, I was so bright eyed when I went to law school and so excited thinking when I become a lawyer, I get to learn about all different subjects. But I remember thinking the one subject I never wanted to encounter was admiralty law. (laughs) And this case really does get into really kind of complicated admiralty law. And um, yes, it's a criminal case, which seems like it would be right up my alley. But what happened here is it's a federal case of criminal negligence, and so that, you know, sort of that part all makes sense. But then when you look into um, what the negligence was all about, it's um, you have to look at whether or not the um, the boating company employees understood the weather reports for that day and understood the wind conditions and all of those things, and that all gets into this admiralty law that I uh, have tried so hard to avoid. <laughs> so um, basically, um, some of this, some of these decisions came down based on that admiralty law, mm-hmm. and um, not necessarily straight based on criminal law. So um, you know, it's a very, I think, technical decision um, and a sad one. But at least um, the civil case. Um, has brought some solace to those survivors. And settlement to them is, is what's happened right. there. Mark, your thoughts on this? I was this? just going to say, yeah, this was this is purely a jurisdictional issue. So no ruling on the merits whatsoever. It was just that, that this lake is, lake is not used by federal or by interstate navigation, so it's not subject to the admiralty law rules, which I also have avoided, but so it's not subject to federal jurisdiction. So like I always tell my first year um, undergrads, you know, you know, if you go down and, and you know, do something inappropriate um, um, in some place downtown St. Louis, you know, the city cops will get you and you'll, pre- but if you do it on the arch grounds, that's federal land, that's a federal you now have a federal criminal case against you. It's huge. And and so um, just because they cannot be uh, prosecuted in federal court, my understanding is the state court, uh, they're considering state charges, mm-hmm. criminal charges. And as Nicole said, there's already been a settlement in the civil case with the, um, with the uh, 
the company, I think it's Ripley's, mm-hmm. believe it or not, enterprises. And so, um, but they're still going after these individuals in state court. So it's not like justice hasn't been done. It's just they went to the wrong place. You know, it's interesting, this uh, Ripley Entertainment, they cited federal law to say their damages should be limited to the value of the yeah. sunken boat, and the value of the sunken boat is zero. Um, and they lost on that. So basically saying that the feds don't have jurisdiction here, it kind of cuts both ways. Um, on one oh. hand, it relieves them from criminal prosecution. On the other hand, it says, no, no, you don't get off scot-free. You're going to have to pay some civil penalties here. It feels almost like a Solomon victory here that, it, you know, some that, things that, ended up working out. That happens all the time where <laughs> you're making a choice. You know, do I want to argue they were within the scope of their employment because uh, then I get workers comp or do I want to argue they were outside because then I'm not liable for their their negligence, negligence against somebody else. And you kind of want to know which has the biggest damages before I start collecting my facts to make the argument. And and you're exactly right there. And And also, you know, the company is different from the individuals. And these these are individuals being criminals. So there might have been a conflict between the boat captain and the company. Mm-hmm. Nicole? What they I was just going to add on to what Mark said, that not only is that incredibly common in lawsuits that, you know, um, sort of arguments um, change to which benefits the client that you're representing, but um, sometimes you even plead in the alternative. We make this argument. And by the way, if that doesn't work, here's the alternative argument. And uh, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> it's yeah. shocking what it's, y'all are allowed to do. It's like the old, have you ever heard the joke when you ask a mathematician, what's two plus two? And he says four. And you ask a lawyer and the lawyer says, what do you want it to be? You know, and then. You tell me what you want, and then we'll figure a way to get there. So on a more sobering note here related to this this duck boat thing, I did a little Googling because I remembered that Senator Josh Hawley had made a big point of he was introducing this bill that would stop this from ever happening again. And I was prepared to say, oh, nothing has happened with that bill. Actually, it turns out that that bill did pass the Senate unanimously this past month. And this would put in a lot more restrictions on how duck boats can operate, make them have some safety features. And so even if we're not seeing criminal charges, even if they don't end up coming in state court, which, as Mark said, may happen. It sounds like there are some changes coming out of this. So so that is a good thing. A completely unrelated matter I want to talk to everybody about today, and that is Missouri's medical marijuana rules. Are the state's rules for who gets to sell marijuana in this state, are they unconstitutional? Well, one out-of-state entrepreneur thinks so. He has filed a lawsuit. Again, this is in federal court. His suit says that he has been deprived of significant and valuable business opportunities due to the residency requirement. He says it violates the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Susan, what what kind of argument could this be? So what people um, who aren't lawyers, and this at the risk of sounding like a law professor, the (laughs) Commerce Clause is a clause inherent in the United States Constitution that helps us navigate trade between different states. And what it says is that if I'm selling something in Missouri, I can't give preference to Missouri products. I have to be fair to any product that comes from anywhere in the state. Hmm. Um, That's an oversimplification, but that's what we're talking about, right? So we give parity to other states and people doing business in other states. What happened here is that the Missouri law said only Missouri people can own Missouri marijuana dispensaries. And the gentleman who brought the suit said, well, that's not fair because now I can't be majority owner. And if I want to sell my part of the marijuana business, I'm going to have to sell it to somebody in Missouri. So you're really restricting my ability to trade or do business between Missouri and other states. Um, And that was the issue before the court, or is the issue before the court. It seems like, I mean, they might well have a problem here. I I read Maine had a law like this. It got sued on the advice of its attorney general. It dropped the residency requirement. Mark, if you were the state's attorney here, would you recommend that Missouri does the same? Yeah, uh, I think um, Maine, you're exactly right. Oklahoma had a similar uh, situation. The only complicating factor here is that 
the federal government still says marijuana is illegal, you know? And so, so if you wanted to produce, uh, you know, marijuana in Missouri and then take it to Kentucky or something, uh, while typically you couldn't prohibit, if I want to, um, you know, grow corn in Missouri and, and sell in Kentucky, Missouri can't do any kind of prohibition, but here the federal government is keeping it. Uh, having said all that, yeah, I think this is, um, this is, I mean, there are a lot of problems with this marijuana. The whole system is screwed up. And then also they're giving points for people who have experience, who are going to be outstate people, but yet they're saying, 51% has to be owned by Missouri. So I think it's a mess. I, I think um, I could see this being uh, ruled unconstitutional and um, and the whole thing being undone. And and it what kills me is they're, they're using up all the funds from this to defend these lawsuits instead of it going to the veterans and to the veterans hospitals, which is I think what they kind of sold it on that, that would be helping. And the only people making money off it now is, are the lawyers. So it's too bad. It's interesting. There was a different lawsuit. As Mark said, there have been so many lawsuits over the rules of, of this program and then how these, those rules were applied led to a different round of lawsuits. Um, this other lawsuit challenged other facets, including geographical bonuses, which gave more points to businesses in high unemployment zip codes. And the judge upheld those. This is one part of this law that at this point is thought to be constitutional. Um, they say they're going to appeal. Nicole, do you think there's there's a they have the ability to do preferences for locating in certain zip codes? Well, if I'm understanding you right, I'm thinking the part that you're talking about was uh, Judge Joyce ruling um, in Cole County, and that was really based on state law and not the Commerce Clause. And so here, um, we're really looking at different precedent, and we're looking at different constitutional principles. So that wasn't even addressed in that um, state lawsuit. And so I think what we have here in terms of the Commerce Clause is really a winning lawsuit. I think this is exactly why the Commerce Clause was created. I mean, just to give a bad history lesson, I mean, this was the framers literally drafted the the Commerce Clause because the colonies were doing these kind of tricks and uh, they didn't like it. So literally, like, this is why the Commerce Clause was created. And so... Um, I think this is a winning lawsuit, and I think Judge Joyce's ruling, um, although soundly based on the law that she was supposed to base it on, um, is not going to be based on this same law, just as we were talking about in the last case. There's a difference between federal law and state law. Well, so tell me this. I mean, I'm hearing the consensus of the group is that some changes have to be made to Missouri's regulations here, or this lawsuit is going to force them. Um, this was a constitutional amendment. And what we kept hearing from backers is they'd written this in a way that wasn't going to be easy for the legislature to change. How does that affect uh, if we have... Uh, you know, something that needs to be changed to prevent the whole thing from going down in flames. Susan, do they have any room to move on this? You know, I I think they do. I, I think what's that you can substitute the word uh, lobbyists for backers. And so I my sense is that this was written in a way to get people to vote for it, to allow for the legalization of medical marijuana to get their foot in the door. And now that their foot's in the door, they're gonna make the adjustments necessary to keep the dispensaries open. But it, you know, they sold this to Missourians on the ground that Missouri people are gonna get, you know, the money from it. And like Mark said, here's where all the profits are gonna go. And we're gonna open in underserved neighborhoods and it's going to look completely different um, by the time it's done. Well, it's it's dispiriting um, to hear about some of the fallout on this. But I guess isn't that that's human nature and that's also the way of the law. Speaking of which, here's another case with human nature. Uh, this is State Representative Wiley Price. He's under fire after the House Ethics Committee accused him of covering up a sexual interaction with an intern. A 10-person committee has made a bunch of recommendations in this case, including stripping him of his committee assignments, uh, forcing him to pay $22,000 to cover the cost of the investigation. They basically want this guy to quit. What I'm interested in 
here is the actions of Wiley Price's attorney. According to this House Ethics Committee report, the attorney allegedly left his phone in a hearing room in an attempt to record closed-door deliberations among the members. This attorney has not been named, so I have no idea who I'm talking about here. I honestly don't know who this is. But should this attorney face, say, disbarment for what feels like a pretty um, unethical action taking place at, at the Missouri legislature here? Am I overreacting to think this is a huge deal, Mark? I don't think you're re- overreacting. And actually, I thought this was an extremely good catch on your part because I read that story and I just went over the whole part, you know, towards the end of the um, article, I tend to drift off anyway. But um, I, I mean, this Missouri, like many places, is a one-party consent. So if, you know, if I call you on the phone I can record it as long as I know the recorder's on. Does it matter that you don't know? But here, as I understand these facts, he left, somebody left a, uh, a recording device and they were either listening to it live or they were recording it and no one else knew what was going on. They had an expectation of privacy. So I think this might be a criminal violation of uh, the Missouri wiretapping type laws. Um, and so... Yeah, I think, and I and I would think for bar issues, I'm sure there's a bar um, a rule that probably just you know, um, I mean, violation of the law here. Nicole, are are you seeing a possible criminal matter here as Mark is? I don't know about the possible criminal matter. I'd have to sit down and think about that one for a while. But I definitely think there's a clear bar violation. I was I was trying to think while Mark was talking. I think. You know, you have to have candor towards your opposing counsel. That's a direct rule of professional responsibility. And this is clearly, and I realize this is not necessarily like an adversarial litigation um, situation directly, but it's still not candor towards the parties you're working with. Um, It's underhanded. I have actually heard of this kind of thing happening in litigation where, like, for example, in a, uh, a party will have one of those phone systems sitting on the table and will record uh, surreptitiously. And I have seen professional violations for that kind of thing. I'm obviously not going to name names. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that is clearly a professional responsibility violation. And I think, yeah, that attorney's bar license could be in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. That includes Nicole Gorofsky, Mark Smith, and Susan McGraw. Coming up next, we're going to talk about waiting lists for the public defender and some interesting hope on the horizon on this. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Today is our legal roundtable. We're having just a blast talking about various facets of the law, both civil and criminal. Um, my guests today include Nicole Gorofsky, a former prosecutor, now in private practice. Her firm is Gorofsky Law. We're also joined by Mark Smith. He's an attorney as well as an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. And we're also joined by Susan McGraw. She's a former public defender and director of the Criminal Defense Clinic at St. Louis University School of Law. Now, Susan, um, We've been talking on this legal roundtable for months now about the problems of making sure that the public defender's office has enough funding. This is a scandal in this state, how badly that system is funded. I understand there was some good news, but some strange news that came out of Columbia related to this problem. Tell us what's been going on. Well, there's a waiting list now at most public defender's offices, and that includes people who are waiting in jail. So imagine you're waiting in jail for the judge to hear your case and you're waiting four or five months and you still don't have a lawyer. That's the situation that 3,000 Missourians were in because the public defender can't take any more cases after a certain point. 
So this has been ongoing for years and years, the refusal of the Missouri legislature to properly fund the Missouri Public Defender's Office. An attorney who used to be a public defender in Boone County gave $300,000 of her own money to the office to hire lawyers for the people in Boone County, which is Columbia, Missouri, to have private lawyers. And it is extraordinarily generous. I mean, what a I gift. Have I have never heard of this before, um, where someone was willing to give that kind of money, make that, and I'm talking celebrity, anyone. Um, so first of all, it was extraordinarily generous, but we cannot expect any change in the criminal justice system that we're all hoping for and everybody's talking about until we give enough money to the public defenders to hire the lawyers they need to give decent representation. I mean, this feels like uh, the American healthcare system, the fact that now if you're on the wrong plan or you don't have a plan, GoFundMe has to pick up the slack. Is this where it's going when it comes to public defenders in the state of Missouri that, you know, you have to have a, a wealthy benefactor? And God bless this woman for doing this. I don't mean to at all cut into the generosity of her gift here. But thinking that this is necessary and the fact that it is necessary feels terrifying to me. Uh, Mark? I agree. I mean, and, you know, there's um, and I, I don't know if your listeners know this, but, you know, if you're a poor person and you get arrested, you have a right to an attorney. That's the public defender, a government employee. And that's because of the Constitution. But if you're a poor person and you can't say get your Social Security benefits or something, you don't have any right to the attorney. And so there's a something called Legal Services, a great organization that gets some money from the federal government, but then they don't get enough. And so now for, for as long as I can remember, the, the local lawyers have supported that organization. And, and I would hate, I mean, you don't want to have something like that happening for the public defenders where all of a sudden lawyers are having to raise to, to give somebody what's guaranteed under the Constitution. Susan? When I was a public defender, and it was a while ago, um, they decided, the legislator decided, we need to ask the poor people who were our clients for money at the end of every case. And so some of the public defenders in St. Louis City decided to hold a bake sale oh. on the steps of the courthouse to demonstrate how ridiculous it was that poor people should, you know, pay the light bill or pay a lawyer, right? Um, so it's time. I mean, it's really time for the Missouri legislature to make good on the constitutional mandates of providing lawyers. Nicole. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to be, you know, the hardline prosecutor and give you some controversy on your show, but this is just ridiculous. I mean, this has been going on for so long, and there's been so much notice to our state legislature. I mean, and if I'm going to speak in terms of lawyer terms, if something's going south, and they've known about it for so long and haven't done anything about it. I mean, now it's really their fault. So, I mean, I can remember back when it was Governor, you know, Jay Nixon, and they tried to make a point or a show of it by appointing him as a special public defender, um, you know, just because they were trying to show how dire the need was. I mean, and that I can't even remember how many years ago that was. And so this is just this is a serious serious problem. I think they've done studies were like 50th out of, you know, 50 states or something. I mean, I might I think be we're 49th. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're, we're exactly. terrible. <laughs> so, I mean, this has got to get fixed. And, I, you know, I don't know what you have to say or do, but they're just not doing it. Well, I'm mad that they're not listening to us because I feel like we keep saying they just need to fix this. Nothing seems to change that. Maybe this $300,000 donation will shame the state legislature. I mean, I'm, I'm almost being sarcastic here because I know that it won't. But anyway, um, so I want to talk about another matter that affects the indigent. These are, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are stuck in jail waiting to be found guilty of something or not guilty because they can't pay for bail. And that was the case for a man who was in the St. Louis County Jail. 
He died. Um, his attorney has now filed a lawsuit. He died of a very treatable form of leukemia. And it turns out jailers thought he was faking it. And so they just didn't bother to get him health care from what this lawsuit is alleging. Um, Susan, does the county have uh, some bad liability here? Well, if they can win a case, the county has bad liability. But there is a long history of people being unable to win cases against um, entities such as correctional medical systems, which is a specialized um, prison and jail medical provider. It is endemic that people in jail and prisons do not receive the health care that they should. Um, a gentleman in my clinic, a lawyer named John Ammon, had to sue because they were giving cut rate hepatitis drugs to people in the prison. And he won that lawsuit. You know, it's one thing to win a lawsuit. It is really nearly impossible um, to get relief in those circumstances. And you have to remember, people in jail can't leave and go to the doctor. They are 100% completely dependent upon the medical providers in jails and prisons to give them the health care they need. So you're saying these cases are really hard to win. I might read this and say, wow, this is damning. The county really screwed up. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. Unfortunately, they're very difficult. Uh, well, okay. There's um, <laughs> so another case I want to talk about. This is an interesting ruling that came out of the Missouri Court of Appeals for the Western uh, District. This is a charter school required students to be vaccinated. And if they weren't getting vaccinated, they had to obtain something called a Form 11 from the state health department. The form basically says you have a religious objection to vaccines. Well, instead of filing the form, the family in this case filed a handwritten note. Their note basically said the same thing. Thing the form says they have a religious religious exemption. The charter school booted the kids. The family sued. It said requiring the form from the health department uh, violates the Missouri Constitution regarding freedom of religion, separation of religion, as well as the Missouri Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which prohibits discrimination against this family on the basis of their religious viewpoint. Now the court ruled against them, but does anyone think they have a case? Why should they have to go fill out this form when they could just as easily write a letter that says the same thing? Nicole, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think those merits are incredibly interesting, but I don't think that the court addressed them in this case. I think um, the case was ultimately um, uh, not addressed on appeal because of technical reasons that they didn't, you know, do appropriate things to have their appeal heard. So, um, unfortunately, those those fascinating religious rights issues um, weren't heard and likely aren't going to be heard. And that can happen if, you know, you don't, you don't reserve your right for appeal. And, um, that's what happened here. So, um, but, you know, at the same time, and I didn't go back and research it, but I think this has got to have come up before with, you know, um, we have polio vaccine, we have MMR vaccine, we've had vaccines throughout history that are absolutely required at this point. Um, to go to school, and I think there probably are religious exemptions. I've probably never paid attention to it because it doesn't apply to me. Um, but, but you know, this isn't new, so I think there's going to be precedent out there, and I think it's going to stand that the schools can require these types of vaccinations. You know, it's interesting. I think we're going to see more of these cases. I saw a headline out of France where it sounds like they're going to require proof that you've been vaccinated uh, for the coronavirus in order to ride public transit there. Um, Mark, do you think we'll start seeing more of these requirements and then more people pushing back and, and this becoming a yeah. legal issue? So, you know, at WashU, um, on the on the main campus, for the first time, we had to all get, if you wanted to come on campus, and most of us are working from home, but you had to get a flu vaccine. Um, and, you know, we've always been encouraged, but if, now you were required. So I think more of this will happen. I agree with Nicole on this case. I, I read it and I didn't really understand it because it and, it, and it seemed like they maybe had just not raised this at the lower level. And then the, the, the court was saying we're, we're not allowed to do a, um, a factual hearing so we just have to defer and um, but um, and you didn't file the form and you admitted to that and and it's required so um, but I think you know most of these places do allow these exemptions you just have to fill it out and I, I think it's going to be 
tough to, um, you know, to require somebody who has a religious exemption and does the right paperwork. I suspect they're going to be exempt for these vaccines. It's interesting. Like if somebody Others brought, take a different... if somebody tried mm-hmm. to get one of these exemptions at Wash U, they wanted to be on your campus and didn't have the flu shot. Would Wash U, as a private employer, have to listen to that? I think so. I mean, I thought there was a policy, you know, now you're getting me in an area where I don't know. I just Sorry, Mark. got my vaccine and, and or I got my flu shot and did my paperwork. You um, are not an anti-vaxxer here. Let's make that clear. No, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm for any medicine you can give me and um, yeah, staying healthy as possible. <laughs> but there are people who have different views. And I think, you know, it, it, if it's based on religion, and particularly lately, the courts have given a lot of deference to your sincerely held religious belief and they're going to and and a lot of that's been put into statute as well mm-hmm. so there's another case that was in the news this month uh, these are some ferguson inspired reforms that were spearheaded by attorney general eric schmidt back when he was in the legislature um, these have quite a tortured history Se- several cities in st louis county had challenged the law saying it unfairly targeted them the supreme court first scuttled some parts of the law saying a law aimed at a specific issue or location was presumed to be invalid then it reversed itself in 2019 saying it had aired and so now a new ruling that follows that second Supreme Court verdict, um, it says such a law would be presumed to be constitutional if there's a rational basis for it. Basically, these Ferguson-era reforms are allowed to stand. First of all, reading the history of this law, my head hurt. How unusual is it to see the highest court reverse itself in just a matter of a couple years' time? What's going on here, Susan? Yeah, it's very unusual. Um, You know, normally to overrule a precedent would take decades, right? Um, And I'm not sure if it's a reaction to the emerging social justice movements um, surrounding criminal justice. Um, Regardless of why it happened, um, they're going to allow these uh, statutes to be implemented. And overall, I mean, do we see any downside of the court now saying, hey, you can have these um, location-based laws? Does this open up um, open up Pandora's box where now they can just make a rule that only targets, say, St. Louis City? Seems like something some state legislators might be interested in. Well, they go by population, is my understanding. Um, and I think they also looked at some of the worst offenders but there are other laws that apply to cities based on their size that have been upheld. You know, a city over 300,000, a city, you know, between 25,000 and 40,000. Those kinds of laws have been held to be legitimate. So they can already so, do this. They already do it in some situations. Okay. Well, it's, I guess overall, this is this is a good thing, right? I mean, these are some reforms that these St. Louis County municipalities needed to be reformed. Um, so, and what, what the, and just to be clear, what the reforms are, are putting on a limit on the amount of revenue that these little tiny municipalities can get from, um, you know, from tickets, mm-hmm. um, kind of nuisance ticketing. There's also some stuff about uh, certifying the police departments and stuff. But I think part of the problem is over policing in areas that don't need it and by police officers that may not be as well trained. So a very real problem these we're addressing. In our final couple minutes here, I'm gonna bring up something that might not be as real of a problem. This also involves um, Attorney General Eric Schmidt um, has now left the legislature. He's there as our state attorney general. His office took the lead on writing two different um, amicus briefs challenging how other states handled ballots in the presidential election. Can we be proud of this work? Now that these things have sorted out, should Missouri feel that it was, this was great that we put our taxpayer-funded attorneys to work on these briefs. Nicole, how do you feel? This one deserves an eye roll, like a hard eye roll. So basically, this is kind of ridiculous. This is not what the Missouri Attorney General is supposed to do. And honestly, you know, though I'm joking of talking about eye rolls, it terrifies me. Um, it terrifies me that our state attorneys general are going to start getting involved in politics that they're going to start getting involved in things that have no legal basis, um, that they're going to start getting involved in things that I think are um, underhanded, 
dare I say, um, this is just, I mean, I'm going to go along with Senator Claire McCaskill, who said this is just embarrassing. So I want to make one last note here. It seems like these kind of election challenges have now spread to St. Louis County. The Republican who lost in the county executive race, that's Paul Barry III, he filed a lawsuit challenging his loss. He lost by 115,000 votes, which is a pretty big chunk in St. Louis County. Um, Are we going to start seeing these challenges on every single race now? They don't even have to be close anymore. Susan, is is this the precedent that we're going under here? I really hope not. Uh... You know, it's expensive, first of all. So whoever brings these challenges, it's only going to be people who are well-funded enough to hire attorneys to do it. And it's this whole, uh, let's just muck up the system, even if we won't win. And it really, um, these kind of challenges to the rule of law and the electoral process are the kind of things that I've seen when I've traveled to other countries, you know, uh, underdeveloped countries that are trying to improve on their constitution. That's what we see there. You know, in a million years, I would not have believed we would have seen resistance to a valid election like we've seen in the United States. And it's discouraging and it's a little terrifying. Well, so talk about an optimistic note to end our show on, but there we are. Um, Susan laying it all out. Uh, Susan McGraw, Director of the Criminal Defense Clinic at St. Louis University School of Law. Thank you so much for joining us and and sharing that note of hope for our our democracy. (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. (laughs) And Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean of Career Services at Washington University. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hemphill, Laura Hampton, Emily Woodbury, and Alex Hoyer. The audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.